0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. In this episode of Strange Matters, I will be talking about a very bizarre and unusual concept. I'm sure for all you listening to this right now, at some point in your life, you've asked yourself the question, could I kill someone? The answer, of course, will vary from person to person, Some would be able to do it under the right conditions, others only for a desperate act like self-defense, while the rest probably just don't feel like they could ever have it in them to take another life, regardless of the circumstance. As hard as that question is to answer, an even tougher one would be, could I murder someone in cold blood? It would seem that most people would agree that anyone who commits murder would do it as a deliberate and conscious effort, for whatever motives or desires or twisted logic they have in their minds. They do it for a reason, a purpose. However, in a few very rare cases, certain people have carried out brutal acts of cold-blooded murder, all the while not even realizing that they were doing it. In this episode, I will be discussing the strange topic of sleepwalking murders, also known as homicidal sleepwalking. This term is used to refer to any case where the killer involved claims that they were not aware of anything they were doing, as they were actually asleep the entire time. This phenomenon has been controversial through the years, as it is hard for the common person to believe that a violent and horrible act like murder could ever be done while a person is still in an unconscious state like sleepwalking, and it can be nearly impossible to prove what really happened in some of these cases. So for this discussion, I will present a number of cases where the culprit claims the sleepwalking defense as a justification for their actions, and the science behind whether it's really possible to murder someone in your sleep. Sleepwalking is a phenomenon of combined sleep and wakefulness. It is classified as a sleep disorder belonging to the parasomnia family. It's actually pretty common, there are several million reported cases in the United States every year, and I'm sure there's a good deal more that go unreported. The time of sleepwalking differs greatly, it may last as little as 30 seconds, or up to several hours. Sleepwalking typically occurs within the first third of the night when slow wave sleep is most prominent, coming on during a state of low consciousness where the individual is physically able to perform activities that are typically performed during the normal state of full consciousness. These activities include just getting out of bed, walking around your house, rearranging furniture, and even cleaning. However, it can also lead to dangerous activities such as cooking, driving, going after hallucinated objects, or, as I will discuss in this episode, even homicide. I myself have never sleptwalked, at least that I'm aware of, but I do know a few people who have. All of their incidents were rather innocent, the usual of just getting out of bed and walking around the house before returning to sleep. For me personally, it is a strange and nearly impossible feat to wrap my mind around the idea that a person could brutally beat or stab another person to death, all the while remaining asleep. I've always thought of sleepwalking as just stumbling around your house in your pajamas, maybe doing a late-night raid of the fridge for a snack, but before researching this topic, I never could have imagined that something as dark as murder was actually possible for a sleepwalker. However, it would appear that it is quite possible, and it has happened before on numerous occasions. So for the next segment of the episode, I will be presenting just a few cases of this homicidal sleepwalking. One of the first cases of the sleepwalking killers on record in the United States is that of Massachusetts versus Terrell. This happened way back in 1846, when a man named Albert Terrell used the sleepwalking defense after staying trial for the murder of a prostitute in Boston. Apparently, after rendering her services and going to bed, Terrell would go on to getting out of bed and grabbing a knife, slitting the poor woman's throat so deep that it actually nearly decapitated her. After the gruesome murder, Terrell would set fire to the brothel, all the while still claiming to be asleep, and he ran out of town. Perhaps fearing what he had done once he actually came to, Terrell would flee all the way south to New Orleans, where he would be quickly discovered by the police and arrested. During the trial, his lawyer stated that Terrell was a chronic sleepwalker and would often have episodes of times where he would not know what he did at night. The lawyer said it was very possible that Terrell committed the awful crime, all the while being asleep. Now, Terrell must have had a pretty convincing attorney because, for some reason, the jury bought this and found him not guilty of the murder and arson charges. The trial of Albert Terrell is thought to be the first U.S. legal case in which the sleepwalking defense was mounted successfully. Though the man was freed at the time, many contemporaries today didn't buy the defendant's version of events, as it contradicts the current known symptoms of sleepwalking but most likely due to the people's lack of modern science back in the day, the jury could believe such a chain of events was possible for a sleepwalker. The next case I want to discuss is that of Scott Folleter, and it reminds me a bit of the Terrell case, in that the accused individual did not simply stop at the murder, but carried out a series of actions afterwards that seemed too implausible to be real for a sleepwalker. On the night of January 16th, 1997, A neighbor named Greg Coons claimed to have witnessed Scott Folletter holding his wife Yarmilla's head underwater in their backyard pool. Since it was dark, Coons could not get a clear look at what exactly was happening, but he thought he heard some screams, so he decided to call the police. When the police arrived, it was clear something horrible had happened, as they discovered the body of a woman in the bloody pool out back. Yarmilla was found to have been stabbed 44 times. The police also found Scott Folleter still at the house, with some streaks of blood on him and band-aids on fresh cuts on his hand. Scott was taken in to be questioned, and in his interrogation he was saying that he was sleepwalking that night. He did not deny that he committed the murder, but claimed that he had no memory of what had happened since he was asleep the entire time. Scott had been known to walk in his sleep before, and a lot of what he was saying in his interrogation was in line with the commonly known notions of the condition. At the trial, Scott Folleter's attorney did not try to say their client didn't murder his wife, but instead that the evidence would show that Scott was simply sleepwalking the entire time, and thus was not responsible for his actions. Dr. Rosalind Cartwright, a sleep disorder expert who examined Scott, did claim that it was possible the murder was committed in this state of mind. The doctor said of people who are sleepwalking, Sometimes they hurt themselves. Sometimes they hurt other people but this is a state in which they are confused. They're not conscious. They think something terrible is happening and they have to defend themselves, so often they will fight. The story presented by the defense claimed that Scott Folletter was under a lot of stress from his job as a product engineer and had only been sleeping a few hours a night for a time leading up to the murder. To add to his stress at work, Scott still had to take care of his wife and two children in the house. The day of the crime, the family's pool pump had broken down and he had attempted to fix it to no avail. As the story goes, on the night of January 16th, Scott Folletter got out of bed in the middle of the night and headed downstairs. He put on his work clothes and got his tools out of a Tupperware container that he kept in the trunk of his car. In this toolbox was the knife that he would eventually use to kill his wife. Scott would then go out to the pool to try to fix it, where at some point in the night his wife Yarmilla came out to check on him. Apparently, in his confused state of mind, the man must have thought he was being attacked and reacted to defend himself, namely by stabbing his assailant dozens of times, before ultimately holding her under the water until she died. The defense finished by saying that the man's actions were completely nonsensical and illogical, and that the sudden burst of violence was typical of a sleepwalker being confronted by a person. The defense also displayed evidence of several sleep tests performed on Scott, which showed he did in fact fit the profile of a sleepwalker. As for the prosecution, of course they did not buy into the sleepwalking story at all. After some investigation, they found out that there was trouble in the marriage between Scott and his wife. Scott was a very active member of the Mormon Church, but recently Yarmila was lately having her doubts of the faith, and wanted some space from the church, which greatly angered Scott. The climax of the trial was when Scott Folleter himself took the stand to tell his side of the story. The man broke down and claimed that he was devastated, and that the two had been soulmates since high school, and he had a great marriage. Scott said, Personally, it's something that's going to haunt me forever. There was no way I could do that, not intentionally. I loved her. I don't know what I would do without her. Though the defense was quite confident in the case, there were several holes in Scott's story that just didn't add up. Per his story, during the murder, the family's dog was barking loudly. Scott said he had gone over and comforted the dog and put him inside. The prosecution pointed out that the man should not have been able to recognize his dog, nor the fact that it was being loud in his sleepwalking state. Also, after Yarmila's body was dumped in the pool, Scott had changed out of his bloody clothes and boots. He put them all in a plastic trash bag along with the bloody knife, the murder weapon, and stashed it away in the spare tire well in the trunk of his car. Again, the prosecution pointed out that a sleepwalker would never have the presence of mind to actively clean themselves or try to hide the bloody clothes and weapons in a secret location. An expert on sleep conditions testified that Scott Follinger's actions were just too complex to have actually been carried out during sleepwalking. It would appear that the jury agreed, and on June ninth, 1999, they found Scott followed her guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment without chance of parole. Though he has yet to admit his guilt, the belief is that Scott premeditated the murder, grabbing his knife and waiting outside for his wife to eventually come out and check on him, where he could murder her. Though at first his sleepwalking defense looked plausible, due to both his statements and his actions after the murder, it was clear that there was just not something someone actually sleepwalking would have done. One of the strangest cases of sleepwalking murder defense that I've come across is that of Antonio Nieto. Antonio was a 58-year-old man living in Spain, along with his wife, mother-in-law, and his son and daughter. On the night of January 11th, 2001, Antonio got up from his bed and retrieved an axe and a hammer. The man then returned to his bedroom and bludgeoned his wife to death, before doing the same to his mother-in-law. Antonio then went for his children smashing his daughter on the face and fracturing her jaw. The daughter did the smart thing and played dead, lying prone and silent, and that made her father walk away after a few moments. Antonio last went for his son, who was still in his bedroom, and attacked him in his sleep. The two would fight hand-to-hand for quite some time, Antonio hitting his son with his weapons and managing to slash the younger man's ear in the process. Fortunately, though, eventually the younger Nieto prevailed and managed to disarm and subdue his father until the police could arrive. During his questioning, Antonio claimed that he did not know what was going on that night as he was sleepwalking. He claimed that he was having visions of being attacked by aggressive ostriches, believe it or not, and that was why he was using his tools as weapons, not knowing he was actually killing and attacking his own family members. Antonio said he used the hammer and the axe to beat those birds, which sadly in the process caused two innocent victims to die. However, just as with the Scott Folleter case before, Antonio's claims and actions went against what is established as actual sleepwalking behavior. Both of their children claimed that their father verbally recognized them during his attacks, something that can't be done by a sleepwalker and which went against his defense theory. After Antonio had attempted to beat his son but was disarmed, he warned the younger man to not turn on the bedroom lights as his mother was sleeping. When the son went into the room, though, he did find her dead from the assault. Both children also said that in the moment, their father spoke normally and was looking at them, and not talking about ostriches. It would seem from his actual actions that night that Antonio was not having to fight for his life from deadly ostriches, but was indeed aware that he was in his house, and that it was his family members around him. Though obviously his story was false, about sleepwalking and dreaming of birds, it was clear that he was not in the right state of mind. Antonio was found guilty of the murders and sentenced to 10 years in a psychiatric center and forced to pay a large fine as compensation to his victims. He also lost custody of his son and daughter, and after release he is not able to be within 500 meters of either of his children. So up until this point, I've given a few examples of cases where the sleepwalking defense didn't really add up but there are a few instances where the culprit was in fact found to be sleepwalking during the crimes. Perhaps the most famous example of all of an actual sleepwalking killer is that of Kenneth Parks. Kenneth Parks was a 23-year-old man living in Toronto, Canada, with his wife and five-month-old daughter. He also had a very close relationship to his in-laws, as he had helped convince their daughter and his future wife to go back to her parents after she ran away. During the summer before his eventual murders, Kenneth had developed a bad gambling addiction, losing much of the family's money and falling deep into debt. Growing desperate, Kenneth began to embezzle funds at work to cover his deepening addiction. In March of 1987, his actions were discovered at work and he was immediately fired. Several months later, Kenneth attempted to turn things around. He would go to his first Gambler's Anonymous meeting as he tried to grow out of his addiction. He had told several close to him that he was planning on going to tell his own family on the coming Sunday about his recent troubles, as well as coming clean to his in-laws the day after that on the Sunday. He did in fact see his grandmother on that Saturday and told her about his gambling problems, and still had plans to go see his in-laws the next day. However, in the early morning of Sunday, May 24th, something entirely else occurred. In the early a.m., Kenneth rose from his bed and got into his truck. He drove 23 kilometers to the house of his in-laws, got a tire iron from his trunk, and made his way inside. Once in, he came across his father-in-law, and beat him badly before choking him unconscious. Once he was down, Kenneth grabbed a knife and proceeded to stab his mother-in-law multiple times, leading to her death. He then walked to the bedroom door of his teenage sister-in-law, making several strange grunting sounds as she heard before turning around to leave. After his assault, he walked right back outside and got into his truck and drove away. Rather than driving home, he went to the local police station and walked inside. Covered in blood with cuts on his fingers, Kenneth walked in and said, I think I have killed some people. My hands. I just killed somebody with my bare hands. Oh my God, I just killed someone. I've just killed my mother and father-in-law. I stabbed and beat them to death. It's all my fault. The police noticed at the time that though the man before them seemed quite distressed, he was not in any pain. This was unusual because Kenneth had actually deeply cut the tendons on all his fingers during the attack, something that would cause the normal person to be in an extreme amount of pain. This is an example of disassociative analgesia, a blunting of pain sensation in the absence of painkillers. Disassociative analgesia can occur during states of sleepwalking, which plays into Kenneth's story. Though the police were doubtful, Kenneth claimed that he was asleep during the entire events, and didn't really have a clear idea of what he had done. Kenneth Parks had been known to sleepwalk before. Actually, when he was a teenager, he was sleepwalking and nearly climbed out of a six-story window right before his mother could bring him out of it. But it was hard for anyone to think that he could suddenly carry out this violent act in such a state. Due to the bizarre nature of his case, with Kenneth actually driving to another location to commit the crime on people he knew... Even sleep experts were skeptical that he was telling the truth. However, though this murder may be one of the strangest yet, it would appear that Kenneth was actually in a parasomiac state of mind. After performing several tests, it was shown that Kenneth's EEG readings, which can't be faked, were found to be very irregular, even for a person who commonly suffers from sleep problems. Kenneth underwent seven intensive interrogations, and his story was completely consistent throughout each one, something virtually unheard of for someone who is simply telling an elaborate lie or story. There's also the fact that Kenneth was well known to have a very close relationship to his victims, and he had no reason to want to harm them in any way. Combining all the facts that Kenneth couldn't feel pain in the morning of his attacks despite some serious wounds, his sleep test results, the consistency of his story, and the complete lack of any type of motive towards wanting to kill his loved ones, led many to believe that Kenneth Parks was actually sleepwalking the morning of the murders. The experts tried to come up with the truth behind Kenneth's actions, something that had multiple factors leading to this strange and deadly event. It was known that Kenneth did have plans to go over to his in-laws that day. He was well familiar with the route to their house, and he was suffering badly from anxiety due to his financial issues, his gambling addiction, and the fears of his upcoming trial for embezzlement. According to the expert's timeline, an idea must have suddenly occurred to Kenneth in his sleep that he should go over to his in-laws and fix their furnace. He then got up and drove over to the house, but was surprised and frightened by his in-laws, as he couldn't recognize them in his sleepwalking state. He attacked both of them without really knowing what he was doing. The medical review for the trial concluded that the legal defense was, therefore, during non-insane automatism as part of a presumed episode of sleepwalking, The defendant did not have any pre-existing diseases of the mind within the meaning of the Canadian Criminal Code. There was no evidence for psychosis or other mental pathology. Moreover, it was believed that the clustering of such a number of triggering factors was extremely unlikely to occur again, so that the possibility of recurrence of sleepwalking with aggression was considered extremely remote. Because of all this, the jury agreed with his story, and during the trial, the jury acquitted him of all charges, and ultimately, he was free to go. The case of Kenneth Parks is as interesting as it is bizarre, and one of the few instances where the sleepwalking defense actually turned out to be legit. Though probably the most famous, it isn't the only time where the defendant seemed to truly be sleepwalking during their crimes. In October of 2004, Jules Lowe, of Manchester, England, beat his father Edward to death all the while claiming to have been sleepwalking. The 83-year-old man was found with up to 90 different injuries, caused from punches, kicks, and being stomped on over and over again. Jules had been a sleepwalker before, but he had never had a violent episode. After his defense heard that he didn't remember the tack, and that he also had a history of sleepwalking, they started to use the sleepwalking defense and subjected Jules to what they described as the most detailed scientific test in British legal history. Just as with Kenneth Parks, after being observed by experts, they agree that Jules had been in an automaton-like state and was not aware of his actions. In March of 2005, Jules Lowe was acquitted of his murder charges and diagnosed with insane automatism. The judge explained that the verdict of not guilty by way of insanity did not mean the defendant was insane in the normal sense of the word, but that Mr. Lowe was subject to automatism during his sleepwalking. One of the more recent cases was that of Joseph Anthony Mitchell. Joseph was a 46-year-old man living in North Carolina, described as a loving father and husband. Joseph had been under a lot of stress leading up to the night of his attack, getting only an hour or two of sleep a night. In the early morning hours of September twenty-first, two 2010, Joseph got out of his bed and went into the bedrooms of his three young children. He first went to the room of his four-year-old son, who he then proceeded to smother to death. Joseph then went into the bedrooms of his ten-year-old son and thirteen-year-old daughter and attempted to do the same. Fortunately, these two children would end up surviving. Both would later tell Investigations that they awoke to find their father covering their mouths and faces. Alexis, the thirteen-year-old, woke up as she felt someone pressing her head enter her mattress to the point where she couldn't breathe. Alexis said that she thinks she passed out for a few moments, coming to at the sound of her brother's screaming. She ran to the bedroom and fought with her father, trying to get him off her brother. Alexis then ran to the bedroom to tell her mother what was going on. After this, Alexis would find her four-year-old brother Blake lying motionless in his bed and brought him to her mother. During this time, Joseph Mitchell would go on to lock himself in another room. The children's grandfather would call 911 and frantically try to explain the situation. If you are interested, you can actually listen to this 911 call online. Obviously, it goes without saying that it is pretty disturbing. In any case, though, once the police arrived, they were able to break into the room that Joseph had locked himself in, to find the man in a strange state of mind, and covered in blood. He had apparently stabbed and cut his torso and neck several times while in the room. Just as with the other cases of homicidal sleepwalking discussed, Joseph claimed they have no memory of the attack, or anything from that night really, saying that he went to bed, and the next he remembers, he was waking up in Duke University Hospital the following day. Joseph's defense team called mental health experts to testify in the case, and showed that the man was suffering greatly from stress and lack of sleep, which ultimately caused him to sleepwalk that fateful night. At the trial, the jury did not believe Joseph had premeditated or deliberately attacked his three children, which caused the death of the youngest, though they felt he was still somewhat responsible for the death. During their deliberation, they had asked if involuntary manslaughter could be used as a charge, but they were denied. In the end, they found him not guilty of all charges, and he was free to go. Prosecuting attorney Eccles was disappointed in the outcome, but respected the jury's decision regardless. As for why the involuntary manslaughter charge was not used, Eccles said, If the defendant committed the actual conscience, he is guilty of first-degree murder. But if he was unconscious, then the law says he is not guilty of any crime. That statement really is the crux of the sleepwalking murder defense. If a person isn't actually conscious at the time and aware of their direct actions, how can they be held responsible for them? In all these cases, it is extremely far-fetched to conceive that any person could stab their mother-in-law or brutally and fatally beat their elderly father or smother their young infant, all the while being completely unaware of what they were doing. But according to the science behind sleepwalking, it is very possible for such a thing to actually happen in reality. Before I wrap up this episode, I wanted to have a quick discussion on the topic of sleepwalking killers, not on any particular case, but just on the phenomenon in general. At the beginning of the episode, I ask you listeners to think of the question, could I murder someone in cold blood? The thought is certainly disturbing, but for me, what is scariest of all is that for some people, they committed the act without actually having a choice. No matter what their personal beliefs or convictions, for a few unlucky individuals, their bodies simply took over while their minds stayed dormant, sinking into a type of autopilot mode and turning into a homicidal killer with no control over their actions. Just try to imagine one night going to bed, And then the next morning you wake up in a different place, covered in blood, with only fleeting and confusing memories of the violent events that had happened, if you had any memory at all. Though this sounds more like the plot of a true crime drama on TV or something, for some people it turned out to be all too real. The sad truth for many of the people involved in these types of cases is that, even though they weren't in control of their bodies and most likely never had any desire to harm anyone the loved ones of both the victim and the accused did treat them like a murderer and outcasted them. It really is hard to think about. If you found out your significant other or sibling or parent had brutally but involuntarily murdered someone else you loved, could you ever find it in yourself to forgive them or trust them after? I would think that for many of the affected people involved in these cases, there will always be some doubt in their mind as to what actually happened and what exactly was the truth. Were these killers really sleepwalking the entire time and never meant to do it, or do they knowingly commit the murders and just happen to find a smart way out of it? Really, the more I read up on these cases and think about the subject of sleepwalking killers, the more amazed and confused I am at the same time. It really is one of the most bizarre and fascinating topics I've covered on strange matters, and I've definitely looked into a good number of strange crime cases over the years. Fortunately, if there is any silver lining to this disturbing concept, is that it is extremely rare. In the historical court records around the world, there is a very, very small number of cases that appears to be legitimate sleepwalking murders. So the average person can rest easy knowing that it is next to impossible that they could ever do something so terrible. And even for you listeners out there who do sleepwalk on occasion, the chances have it that you will never murder anyone in your sleep. Probably. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own thoughts or feedback on this episode, you can write to us at our email... Strange podcast at gmail.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on our website, StrangeMattersPodcast.com, and you can follow and get in touch with us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For this episode, I'd especially like to thank our newest patrons of Strange Matters, Shannon, Allison, Nightman, Kate, Packard, and Weston. So big thanks for all you guys for helping supporting the podcast grow. For any other listeners who would like to help out, you can check out our page at patreon.com strangematters where you can pledge a small monthly donation and gain access to monthly exclusive bonus episodes. Finally, ask if you are listening to the show on iTunes and enjoy the podcast. Please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us a lot to read your feedback, and it also helps promote the show so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, good night and sleep tight, everyone.